Welcome to Leadership Letters, the brand new podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up in this episode. We've been doing this virtually for so long. Between us, we have 16 children in our core team. We work with these people, but we care about them as well. Oh, I just really don't want to go on a Zoom drinks call. I'm devastated we don't have a role model like you to look to. We're a liberal family and I was never going to want to be Maggie. So we went to amazing far fun locations. He sold fire engines in Asia. Thank you to everyone who's already downloaded episode one and subscribed to the podcast. Welcome back. And if you're just finding us, welcome to you too. I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers. I've been working with leaders for 13 years and I believe I've been learning about leadership pretty much my whole life as we all have. We're surrounded by the impact of leadership. And given that there's a lot of it about, leadership can be a lonely place. There aren't that many opportunities to hear what other leaders are thinking and doing and to get insights into what you might do differently as well as the reassurance that comes from hearing some common ground and some approaches that echo your own. So here on Leadership Letters, you'll hear from other leaders about their experiences, advice and food for thought on all things leadership. And then there are the Leadership Letters themselves. You'll also be hearing our guests share their letters to leaders and using those as another jumping off point for even more leadership talk. The Leadership Letters podcast started life as a newsletter and a request for an audio version. So for those of you wanting to hear the Leadership Letters lowdown each month, with recommendations on things to read, watch and listen, as well as some other leadership tools and ideas, do stay tuned in after our interviews for that. I have two guests on this episode of Leadership Letters. Together, they co-founded the PR Network, the world's largest virtual PR agency with a 3.5 million turnover, They run campaigns in over 40 countries and are a top 150 PR week agency. They've been operating a successful job and leadership share for over 15 years and are passionate advocates of flexible working and were both actually featured on the first ever TimeWise Power List in 2013 for their job share. They both sit on the PRCA Council and to be honest, there is much, much more I could say about them because there is a really long list of their achievements both individually and together. And they found time amongst all of that to join us today, for which we're enormously grateful. So welcome to the Leadership Letters podcast, George Blizzard and Nikki Regazzoni. Hello. Thank you so much. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alice. I love starting with some early memories of leadership. So Nikki, can we start with you? What's your earliest memory or experience of good leadership? Well, my very first job in PR was in 1997. Um, for a small tech agency called Barclay out in Reading Um, and the CEO there who's still there today is a guy called Chris Hewitt very dynamic charismatic guy Um, I was only there for a year but he really taught me a lot about the fact that business is about people and and people buy people it's all about relationships and I think that that's something that George and I have certainly found with building our own agency you know we've We've been so lucky because we've been able to build client relationships that have sustained over a long time. We're working with people we care about that trust us and we trust to do a good job for us. So I would say that that really taught me a lot. Um, And then in my next job, I had another fantastic boss called David Josephs, who's still a friend today. And he told me something about hiring people. Always pay a little bit more than you think you can afford to get that really good person. And again, I think that stood us in very good stead with the team that we've got. Wouldn't you say, George? Absolutely. For me, I'd say it was my dad, my father, my daddy, 
the legend that was Terry Blizzard. Um, <laughs> he definitely, his, his work was really important to him. And it's like probably a big focal part of our family life. Every holiday we went on, we had a work trip attached to it. Um, which was great actually because a lot of his work was based in Asia so he went to amazing far-flung locations he sold fire engines in Asia um, so he probably taught me about leading a kind of a disparate team across multiple countries um, and how to kind of I suppose have a lot of fun in work so he, his leadership was very much driven by fun and connections like Nikki was talking about I mean we used to stay in these people's houses when we go to there in India we stayed in all of his colleagues houses as we went on our holiday so his was all about getting a really true connection and making that work for him um, and they were lifelong friends. And you've already touched on so many of the reasons why I wanted to speak to both of you particularly at this time and I know lots of people are asking you these kinds of questions at the moment and we're really grateful you're sharing them with us because you've been doing this virtually for so long and you talk about the importance of care for each other and care for your clients you talk about the importance of building trust and communication and fun and all of these things I think are things that a lot of organizations that have traditionally been in a building are finding challenging this year and you've been doing this all for so long so let's maybe take some of these separately because there's a, there's a lot in there but let's start with the trust how have you done that so effectively virtually for so long? I think when we set up our company, as, as you know, Lizzie, you know, it was always set up um, from the beginning to be what we say virtual by design. So we never intended to have an office or be able to sort of look into the whites of people's eyes or micromanage people. Um, our whole plan was to work with senior experienced people who knew what they were doing, who we could then trust to get on with their jobs without needing, you know, anybody... Um, helicopter managing them so that George and I could then get on with focusing on building the brand and bringing in more clients so and then I think as we grew our permanent team because in that I'm talking about the um, freelance consultants that we used to deliver our projects but then as we got bigger and, and started hiring people again it's absolutely essential to work with people that you trust and actually something that George and I did do from the beginning was to hire people who we knew or, or who knew someone that we knew, if you know what mm. I mean. So when people were introduced to us, we used to, it sounds a little bit stalkery, and I promise you that we're not, but we were kind of just ask around and do a bit of back checking to check that the people who we were bringing on to work with us were known to other people in our industry. It's quite a small industry. Um, it's a little bit incestuous, if you like. Um, everybody tends to know everybody else. Um, and so we sort of got around that issue by making sure that anybody we brought on was, um, you know, going to have the same sort of values as us, um, the same levels of integrity, and would just be able to get on and do great work for our clients. And have you ever had any experiences where you've doubted that trust? Obviously not naming names, but what, what if, you've, if you've either had to build trust back up or test trust, given that you're not necessarily, as you say, being able to look into the whites of someone's eyes, what what have you done to re-establish trust when you've needed to? Well, we have had to be increasingly rigorous in the way that we work over time. So as we started out, it was just George and I. We'd worked together before. We completely trust each other. That was easy. And then as we hired more people and started putting them to work on our clients, we did have to introduce a lot more kind of formality in terms of contracts and introduce a methodology and a way of working so people knew what, what was expected of them. Um, I mean, we, you know, I'm not going to lie, we have had a few incidents in, incidences in our 15 years of, of 
being a business where people have let us down a little bit. Um, and I would say that we've learned from those experiences and then again, gone back and looked at how we are engaging with people and what they understand about what we expect of them. Um, I mean, building back, we haven't had to build back trust with somebody. I don't, I don't think anybody we really like and love working with us has ever let us down, if I'm honest, but we have had instances where people who perhaps we didn't know as well haven't worked in the way and represented the PR network in the way we would have expected. I can't really go into detail, but we have had a few oh, yeah. of that. And again, we would immediately, if we had to, we would cut off that connection and wouldn't work with those people again. So in, in that scenario, if there, if there was a trust we had to rebuild again, because someone had let us down, the best thing we did was be really honest about that as well and be really transparent and say, okay, this didn't work how we wanted it to do. But effectively, the, the trust of the relationship sits with us. So if there'd been a scenario where one of our people hadn't behaved or um, operated in the way we'd like, the, we were able to kind of correct that very quickly and then not damage the client relationship because we're able to go back to that client and say, okay, we fixed this now. And I think, you know, be honest, put your hands up. So that didn't happen how we wanted it to, but we're going to change that. We're going to make it better. And that's how you retain the trust. I think on that part of the equation yeah. um, is, is by, you know, staying true to that and being honest and admitting when things don't go as well as they should have done and not trying to hide that. Yeah. Building from the trust, you talked about care and fun. And something that as somebody who sort of observed what the two of you do from afar through social media, that kind of thing, there's always to me such a strong sense of team between the two of you. There's such a strong sense of team with, with your key team members. We all know what it means to care for someone, but how do you demonstrate that, for example, from a distance in a way that builds that trust? How do you get the fun into a, a relationship that is mainly operating at a distance? George, do you want to well, kick us off there? You're fun and I'm not. <laughs> I, do, I, do fun. I think it, it's kind of instinctive, really. And I suppose Nikki and I obviously had a great connection when we met. We met on a Hindu. Nikki trod on some glass and I had to pull the glass out of her foot, that kind of thing. And then we realised we worked in the same industry and it just flew from there. And then we started working together and then... You know, over a period of a couple of years, we then began to set up the business. That connection from day one was full of fun. But we went through setting up a business together, having children um, from very early on. And, you know, obviously, Sissy, my eldest, was three months old when we set up the business. Then Nikki went on to have Sam. So we went through quite big life-changing experiences together, which I think cemented our care for each other. Um, and then we've taken that whole way through 15 years. You know, we're, we're really good friends, very close. Um, and you know, everything we do, we, I think we think about each other in those decisions. So what would, what would Nikki do? How would she feel if I did this? To the extent, you know, even when we're having children, we discuss that with each other, you know, about the, the, yeah, how that would impact each other in the business. So that's, that's us. And I say we've, we've always stayed true to that. We have a lot of fun. We always try and meet up, you know, pre-COVID once a week um, to work together. Even yesterday, you know, we knew lockdown was coming. We got together to meet socially distance, of course, but we did work together. Um, and that's really, you know, trying to have those connections in real life that then carry you through the rest of the time when you're not together. Now it gets slightly trickier when you have a bigger team and now we have a team of seven in our core management team. But I think again, it's that still that instinctive sense of always finding the fun in things. But I'd say hiring, you know, Nikki talks about hiring people that we've known, but we've brought on people who felt right for the business, maybe not even at the right time, but we knew we needed them because they were the right fit and the right cultural fit. People who had the same outlook as us, 
but it's, you know dif difference of thought we don't want to have loads of you know samey samey people loads of clones but they had the same life experience or output so you know often they would had their children or they were having their children or they got to a point in their career or we'd work with them in a certain sector or industry so they had that kind of similar sense of culture as we did so that made it a very natural extension of the team because we've been working like this virtually separately from our team for, for forever um that hasn't felt that strange but if we're thinking about how we've tried to um you know to focus on that duty of care a little bit more closely over the last eight months or so. I think we have really stepped that up. So as George said, we pride ourselves on always being very honest and very authentic. We are who we are. We don't believe in pretending to be something else. Um, and so I think we sort of stepped that up a little bit over lockdown and we're quite honest with, well, obviously we've talked about being honest with each other. What's the point in not? But share with our team how we were feeling, honestly, about the situation while trying to be positive and supportive, but also telling them that we wanted them to be honest with us about what was going on at their end as well. Well, and between us, we have 16 children in our core team. So everybody suddenly had this business that we were used to working virtually and separately from one another. And that's all fine. And we're used to it to this situation where everybody's at home, but with 16 children, all of whom have very varied needs. Um, and so, yeah, just, just talking to the team, finding out what they needed. We set up rotor systems. Um, we also introduced a program and a new, which you know about Lizzie, because you were part of it, a new kind of training and CPD program for our team. Um, which we call PR Ed Talks. Uh, so Lizzie was very kind and, and did the first one for us actually, but that's been absolutely brilliant. So that was just a program kind of um, a bit of a mix of, of skills based, of life support, coaching and so on to help people feel connected to one another. And then we extended that to our broader freelance network through a private Facebook group. And then we also did a slightly different version of it for some of our clients, which we called the Client Collective, really kind of quite high end specialised events to make people feel they're part of a community. I really love the way your immediate thought when we did in initially go into lockdown was not to think, well, we already work like this, so we'll be fine, but was to think this is different. This, this is the same and it's different. So what else do we need and what else do our team need? And that your instinct was very much to provide that care. Yeah, I think people made that, made that mistake that thinking if you work remotely or you work flexibly, that this is just the same and it isn't and I think that is a you know it, it's not the same for anyone anywhere you know so it, it's very different times you feel much more isolated because you are on your own we wanted to support our freelance community I mean obviously they've been in the news a lot because of the lack of support certainly at the beginning and maybe getting a little bit better now but over time for for sole traders and people who are self-employed so that affected a lot of the people who we work with who deliver programs for our clients you know right from the beginning and a lot of them are losing work so you know, we did feel we wanted to try and while they're all self-employed, we wanted to try and find a way to make them feel more connected back to our agency as well. Just know that someone cared. I think that's part of the coming back to that care thing again. Just, you know, as humans, we work with these people, but we care about them as well. I was just going to say, I can't think of anything worse than having lots of Zoom socials. So I'm kind of imagining this time, because obviously we're recording this podcast on the first day of, the, of lockdown too. And George and I were just speaking earlier about how we probably don't want to go back to that. I don't think sort of forcing people to, to clink a virtual class over a screen when they've been on a Zoom call for probably most of the days. Anything that anybody wants to do whatsoever. Is that just me? I don't fancy that. Definitely me as well, yeah. I think that's a lot of people. And I do think there is something about how if we're not doing as much of that as we were, because there's a different kind of need now at this stage in it all, 
how, how are we still though expressing that care for each other as human beings how are we taking care that we don't skip straight to the agenda if we're not doing the um one of my clients called it forced fun which <laughs> yeah that's what i'm talking about fun. i just think oh i just don't, really don't want to go on a zoom drinks call and I, again i think as you both recognize it is it's about not assuming that what worked before mm. even to the extent of earlier this year will work now and continuing that talk and so often i think in leadership what what it is that you do well you don't even realize you do well because it's just what you do and you know i think i think potentially the two of you might be surprised at how many people perhaps haven't done some of the things that you've done for their organizations we assume that we care we don't necessarily demonstrate it that well yeah i, I always think it's quite good just to pick up the phone the other yeah. thing you, know, you don't always have to be on a zoom you don't always have to be looking into, into each other's eyes and um, we try and remember um birthdays of our clients as well it, we've always done that just little kind of touches that i think just go to say that you actually do think about that person more than in a transactional relationship um and I, you know we do lots of fun birthday stuff as a team but i think trying to extend that to our broader communities is really nice to do as well we've always done that pre-covid something else that we're going to do this time it's not really lockdown related but um something we haven't talked about yet on the podcast is sort of is listening to what people want so i think what we will be doing is asking our team and our network and in fact we're sending out an email update just to ask people what they want of us from that um, that community that we set up the training program and so on but the other thing we're doing as a team which is a sort of a way for us to feel connected to one another we're going to do a run a virtual run or a walk or a walk <laughs> or a waddle depending on how many mince pies we start eating starting today um, we're going to run um, the distance between our seven houses in the UK. We're going to ask for donations. It's a charity initiative. And then we're going to match the donations we receive from the business. And then we're going to donate it to the Trussell Trust, to the food banks, in time for the next Christmas school holidays, because we're all really worried, obviously, about the, the school meal issue. So, again, that's just something we're doing to pull the team together that does a bit of good um, And let me tell you, that is 1,112 kilometres. <laughs> Our lovely colleague Eileen lives in Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> We're just trying to work out whether she should do the whole Cornish leg back up to Bath or not. But, um, it's about 200 k's each. So I, I can tell you I won't be running all of those. I think that's fabulous. Rather beautifully, you, without knowing, you've talked about something that, um, that I've shared in, and it'll be in the Leadership Letters Lowdown later, which is um, a need that I'm seeing for people to have a goal that is a kind of four to six week goal at this time so well we can we can add a link to sponsor you to the podcast notes that would be amazing so one more question before we ask you to share your leadership letters from each of you let's start with you nikki um one advantage and one challenge of shared leadership <laughs> um okay the main advantage has got to be to have somebody else to share the highs and the lows with and share the burden of a role particularly because george and i have you know, we've got five children between us it's incredibly important for us to be able to balance our family and work life so for me the main advantage is knowing when i stop working we both work three days a week sometimes it's more obviously but when i'm not working i know that george is working and anything that i would otherwise get done she'll be doing it and i just think from all our friends that we know who have 
um, you know, leadership roles, that's incredibly difficult and something they don't have, you know, on that fifth day when they're not working, because they tend to do four days a week, there's nobody there working and they're probably doing it. Mm. Challenge is sometimes obviously passing that baton back and forth takes a bit of time. You know, we copy each other on everything. Sometimes it might be easier if you just finish something yourself, but then you lose that perspective as well that you get with that other person. So um, for me, I'm, I'm all about the pros. <laughs> Thank you, George. Well, she said it all for me, but um, I'd, I'd say to add to that, yeah, it's, it's about having that diversity of thought. So um, Nikki touched on it, but bouncing ideas off each other. So it's not just dividing up the time and sharing the load that way. It's really questioning each other. Does that feel right? What would you do? Um, and sometimes something I would have gone out immediately and my gut instinct would have been to do X. Nikki would kind of count maybe she, she'd tone it down differently or she'd position it differently. And I think that is probably made decisions I've made much easier and perhaps much better in the long run. Um, and obviously flexibility, you know, just doing everything else in your life that's been much better. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection of all things leadership. And still to come, there is this episode's Leadership Letters lowdown. But first, we're going to be hearing George and Nikki talk to us about who they're writing their leadership letter to and why. So George, would you share your leadership letter? Tell us who you've written to and why, and we'd love to hear your letter. My letter is to Hillary Rodham Clinton, the former Secretary of State for the United States. Dear Hillary, never have I wanted to connect with you more than this week. Never have we had more of a need for female leadership than this week. As one of the fiercely contested elections in history comes to a close, a race between two older white men, I feel more desolate than ever that you didn't win in 2016. I'm devastated we don't have a role model like you to look to in 2020. I'm not American and the spectre of the US election is perhaps less relevant for my day-to-day -day life, but I mourn the loss the world experienced in 2016. It wasn't just the US who lost out, we all did. When Trump took over power, not only did we gain, in my opinion, the worst leader of the free world in history, but we lost perhaps the best president in US history. We lost all the female leadership traits you could have brought to the global stage. We lost the opportunity for you to work alongside Angela Merkel and Jacinda Hearn, and at that time, um, Theresa May here in the UK. Picture that, some of the most powerful countries in the world run by women. I often wonder if that had happened, how would the COVID-19 crisis be handled? Early data shows how well female leaders have handled the crisis, both in terms of decisiveness and transparent and clear communications. How frustrating that must be for you to know the difference you could have made. I'm not American, I'm not a lawyer, and I've never worked in government. But like you, I'm a woman, a working mum, and a wife. I grew up knowing your name and that of your husband. I remember the infamy around the Clinton scandal, the headlines, the gossip. It's only since 2016 that I got to know more about you as you campaigned to be the first female president of the USA. And only in the last year when I watched the Hillary documentary that I felt more connected to you than ever. I made my three daughters and my husband watch that documentary. I shared it with friends. I felt it's an important part of feminist media that everyone should watch and reflect on. You showed us how hard work could lead to a successful career and the opportunity to pursue your goals in a male dominated environment. You showed us that when you do get into a position as a leader, even at university, that you can use your platform to campaign for equality and not take the safe option. You showed us that e even in times of crisis, that you can forgive and put your family first, even changed your name to support your husband. You showed that even when people lie about you, attack you and tarnish your name, you hold your head up high and continue to pursue the campaigns that matter with dignity. 
You earned the right to go into office, your credentials are strong, but you had an opponent who deployed the worst tactics to shame and humiliate you. I remember feeling outraged by how you were physically pursued across the stage by Trump as you took part in a presidential debate. You held your nerve, you focused on what mattered. You had to face men giving you advice on what colour pantsuit to wear or being told to make fake promises to win votes. You were told you were cold, when instead you're clever and thoughtful. Through all of this, you were brave, bold and inspirational. However, you weren't successful. History wasn't on our side that day and female leaders all around the world felt the shock and horror of that situation. You deserved to win, you worked hard and you earned that place. But I believe by not winning, you'll create an even stronger legacy. You can talk more freely. You can share your experiences and help make people like me, my daughters and my husband understand that even with the best education, the hardest work and the most powerful husband in the world and experience in office, life as a woman is tough and there's still work to be done and we all need to keep fighting to make it better. Please keep on role modelling for us. Please keep calling out bad behaviour and never stop leading. George. Thank you, George. You had so many people you wanted to write to but struggling to choose. And I said to you, who would you most like to hear what it is you've got to say? <laughs> and I can really hear why you would want Hillary Clinton to hear that. And I know that for both of you, women as leaders, women as professionals and um, women taking up leadership positions, particularly in your industry, is something that you've both been passionate about and supported. What is getting better and what still needs to speed up, would you say? The conversation's there, so that's getting better. So there was a time where people didn't think there was a problem with equality. Um, and particularly in our industry, there's you know, a huge gender pay gap that, that is being addressed by being reported on, communicated about. Um, there's also the gender say gap as well, which is big in our industry, which is strange because it's a communications industry. But you know, when, when you see um, people talking at conferences and presenting, it is more than often not men. So I think, you know, unless there's a, a talk on flexible working or something like that, or share parenting, then obviously the women do it. So I think there is that issue and that there is more to be done, but we are on that journey. And I, I definitely feel that, you know, the work we've done with women in PR and the mentoring there, we get more and more people applying each year. It is becoming, there, are, there is help out there for you if you want to, to take it on board. And George, can I ask a question about the, um, what you said about connection? There was something in watching the documentary that made a switch for you from respect, admiration to connection. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point of reflection for leaders. You know, how, do I, how do I win respect and admiration and connection? So what, what was it that led to that shift? Well, I think with, with someone like Hillary Clinton, I think that is that has perhaps been the thing that went against her is that she was, you know, undoubtedly incredibly clever, hugely successful in her own right and brilliant at what she does. She did, you know, loads of amazing reforms. I think the connection piece came when you watched the documentary because you actually saw her in real life. You saw her as an individual, her as a person. And I think that's something that she's been accused of being cold in the past because you never got that access. Because, and I, I think sometimes you could put female leaders on a pedestal because there are few of them. You, you don't see many of them. And then you, you see this amazing woman with a halo around who's hugely successful. You don't see her with, you know, babysick on her shoulder or anything like that. And I think she allowed herself to be interviewed in very raw terms, talking about quite uncomfortable scenarios. Um, and I think that's when I understood her a lot more. I could relate to her as a mother as a wife, 
I, I think it opened up her personality. And yeah, that, that for me was the connection, is seeing her in real life, seeing her in conversation, seeing her discussing uh, things that, how she felt about things. And I don't think we ever had that opportunity before. It was very much more. I would just add that's something that's come up a lot this year in terms of leadership, hasn't it? And you know, this idea that leaders need to be more human so that people during this very difficult time feel that there is empathy there and understanding on both sides rather than the leaders of a business tending to be quite unreachable. And I think it's a really challenging, you know, I often talk about the loneliness of leadership and I think this is one of the really challenging lines for leaders to walk, which is that you are holding the responsibility for your organisation and for the people in it. And, and you are the ultimate decision maker whilst also sharing enough you know there's that there's that human reveal as well that en enables you to empathize with others be empathized with connect and there's no formula for this i wouldn't dream of suggesting there was jacinda hearn's got that spot on i'd say but she has managed like modern day female leadership brilliantly because i think she is authentically herself you know to the extent she talks about her parents doing the childcare. you know and it, she's never shied away from from any of that and it's actually enhanced her um her leadership because people look to her they can see her as not as a mother figure but someone who takes is very compassionate very able to talk with emotion on the fly as well and i think she's had to handle some awful situations that she's done as a human as well as as a leader and as well as a mother a wife etc etc and there's something about building in the time, the pause to reflect on that. Mm. Not because not, that's not about sort of in, in, a, in an inauthentic way deciding what, what am I going to re reveal, but there is something, you know, how do you keep it safe? How, how do you connect with others? How do you reveal your compassion and share your compassion and do that in a way that, as it, particularly in the instance, you, you know, in terms of Jacinda O'Hearn, as a very public figure. Mm. So many interesting questions mm. and conscious of time. We have another letter. We have the treat of two letters today. So Nikki, who did you write to and why? We'd love to hear your letter next. I am writing to the late Dame Anita Roddick, founder of The Body Shop and Children on the Edge charity. Dear Anita, I admired you as a little girl. You inspired my first entrepreneurial effort, in fact, to try my luck as an Avon lady at age 14. Then as a young businesswoman and today as a business owner with a 20 year career behind me. There really weren't many female leaders to look up to in the 80s. We're a liberal family and I was never going to want to be Maggie. You really stood out to me and my generation because you were a woman with integrity who was running a retail empire while bringing up a family. With the way you set up the body shop, you shun convention and set about building a business from your kitchen table which would make money and do good but also fit with your life and children. I like to think in some small way, George and I did the same when setting up our own company 30 years later. The working world of PR really wasn't working for us, so we wanted to design a business championing flexibility and freedom and give others the chance to work like this too. Personally, I don't like the phrase having it all, but you showed me it was possible to create a life that would allow me to continue having a career while enjoying bringing up my children. The body shop is synonymous with conservation and ethics. Not many people know that your choice to use recyclable bottles was actually a commercial one, because at the beginning of making your products, you just couldn't afford to keep producing new packaging. The ability to reuse plastic chimes with your personal passion for ecology, but it also tapped into a global trend towards environmental conservation. You had a purpose and you followed it. 
These days, purpose is certainly the buzzword of the year, if not the decade. And yet it's clear from looking at what you set out to do 45 years ago that it is hardly a modern notion. Business leaders today would do well to look at how you built a global business empire, which challenged the idea that a business founded on ethical consumerism couldn't also be profitable. Today, the B Corp initiative has turned this idea into a global movement, which we are hoping to join in 2021 to ensure the PR network holds itself to account. Your leadership skills of tenacity, empathy and persuasion are those I'd love to embody in my own role and life. I think it's brilliant that you showed by example to the generation after you and beyond that anyone can be successful in business while always being kind. Thank you. Love that. I'm being spun back to White Mask, of course. Because <laughs> and I forgot to mention that. That's what I said as well. That's what I said yesterday. I, I still love it. I bought it a couple of years ago and, it, and people were asking me what it was. And it's okay. still about five pounds. <laughs> and, and you use those words, tenacity, empathy, persuasion. So hearing what an important role model she was. How do those qualities show up, would you say, in the way that you run your business? I feel a bit embarrassed now because she's got very big shoes and I've got really very little feet, but (laughs) literally. Tenacity, I would say one of the things that we haven't talked about is our work ethic. And I don't think anyone would question how hard George and I work, how much we believed in this business idea that we had, which was quite innovative 15 years ago, this idea of a virtual business, no office. Um, And so we clung on to that. We just thought we had something there and we went for it. So I think we've showed tenacity. Obviously, we've had issues that we've had to deal with, particularly trying to juggle work and, and family life. Empathy. We've talked a lot about that already, about trying to under- listen to other people, understand what they need from us and give that to them. Both you know, our, our, our close team, who many of whom have been with us many, many years. Our first employee joined us a year after we set up. Persuasion, I suppose, again, just bringing people around to your idea in, in a sensitive, um, respectful way. Yes, we had this idea of a different kind of PR agency and a lot of people saw we had something in that and we went for it. But over the past, certainly for the first 10 years or so we were in business, we had to do a lot of persuasion to to explain to clients, prospective clients, how it would work, which sounds ridiculous now in COVID times, but the amount of resistance we got. So you're a PR agency and you're a team, but you're not in the same place all of the time. (laughs) No, we're not, but we are, we do talk on the phone. And actually, by the way, in other London agencies, people aren't all in the office all of the time with each other. Sorry to disabuse you of that idea, but you know, so we had to do a lot of persuasion, I would say, on the, on the client and business promotion side, which has now all gone out the window because now our concept has been fully proved, although we've tried not to be smug about that. <laughs> you know, I would say, wouldn't you say, George, that's been the biggest thing, just explaining how this virtual agency concept is a goer. Yeah, we haven't had to do it as much in the last year and obviously not in the last few months. But yes, just trying trying to show the benefit of it to people who weren't quite there has been has been an ongoing struggle up until recently i wonder if we can close with one of those lovely leadership questions which is a feedback one nikki how about you what's the least useful piece of feedback you've ever been given and what did you do with it i worked for a company and um I was advised that um, I would do well to work all the hours God sends if I wanted to get on in my career. And I was already working long hours. I didn't have small children. I already like, and I like to work hard. And I sort of got into this, this very un- unhealthy way of life where I was working at the weekends. I was working in the evenings and I was getting quite ill and not enjoying it. 
And I actually completely disagree with that now. And that, you know, we've talked a bit about flexibility and George and I've built the business based on an, a flexible model. So we've talked about working part time, but it is very flexible. We work when we need to <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and we make things fit. And I just thought that is just not the way that I want to make my work and life gel together. Worst piece of advice, I'd say, is told very early on in the business to not tell people um, when we weren't working or why we weren't working. So to, you know, to give a kind of veneer that we were always on. Um, so not to say, I'm sorry, we're out of the office today or anything like that. And to us, we just ignored that, didn't we, Nikki? We just thought, well, actually that doesn't feel right that's not us and it comes back to always trying to be who you are whether you're at work or at home and you know and not to be ashamed of the fact that we had children or other things to do um you know just be really honest and say well I'm sorry can't answer that right now I'll come back to you tomorrow morning or if it's urgent can we pick up the phone and have a quick chat so I think it's just being really honest about your situation and not necessarily um trying to cover anything up there's you know we've always set out to do the best job in the best way. And hopefully that, that comes across. And the best piece of advice you've given each other? Just bloody do it. <laughs> <laughs> and Nikki, your best piece of advice? Put yourself first and the work will fit in. We've always said family first. I'm sorry, PL Network clients, but I don't think anybody suffered from that approach. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so, so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Leadership Letters, for the insights, for the for the fun that you bring to your teams and the fun that you've just brought to this episode, as well as all the, my goodness, so much to reflect on and, um, and think about and take away from everything that you've shared. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Lizzie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun. Let's move on now to the Leadership Letters Lowdown. And begin with the usual something to read, something to watch, something to listen to. My to read recommendation this week is The Fearless Organisation by Amy Edmondson. A while back on uh, In a Leadership Letter, I recommended a TED talk by Amy Edmondson, one about psychological safety. And I just loved even the title of this book. Before I opened the first page, The Fearless Organisation got me thinking, well, what does that mean in 2020? What would it be like to be fearless at this time? What does that mean? What does it look like, sound like? And if you considered yourself a fearless organisation pre-2020, how has that strengthened your response to the challenges of the year? What has shifted about that fearlessness? And what have you learned from this year about what you still need to work on? There were so many questions before I even began to read this book. And I loved also early in the book, the reminders about what psychological safety is not. I think coaches, facilitators, we quite often come up against a perception that the kind of work we do is soft in some way, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It should be safe, and absolutely, there should be some warmth, hopefully some humour. It shouldn't be a trial to go through a coaching session or a facilitation session, but absolutely, it shouldn't be about compromise about being soft compassion is about taking care it's about empathy it's about kindness but it's not actually kind to be overly soft it's not kind to make excuses or turn a blind eye to poor performance because that doesn't help anybody so I love what Amy Edmondson says early in the book she says psychological safety is not about being nice not a personality factor not just another word for trust and not about lowering performance standards Psychological safety 
sets the stage for a more honest, more challenging, more collaborative and thus also more effective work environment. Sounds like something we could all benefit from. Heading over to Netflix then for my to-watch recommendation. I've watched the first few episodes of The Playbook, A Coach's Rules for Life. The first episode is with basketball coach Doc Rivers and the second episode with Jill Ellis, the USA women's soccer team coach. Both brilliant episodes and one of the things that I talk about in the leadership letters and indeed is a pillar of the work that I do is that it's about making offers. The ownership of what's useful to you and what you want to do with it stays with you. And what I loved about watching these programmes is they're just full of offers, full of ways of thinking, full of ways that you can apply that thinking to your own leadership and your own situations. Doc Rivers talks about some great advice to get close and that getting close and staying close, the connection you have with your teams as people beyond the agendas. That's one of the many challenges you've all been rising to this year. And I I loved what he had to say about that. And Jill Ellis speaking so powerfully and movingly about being true to herself and how in the moment when she was true to herself, the impact that had not only on her leadership in that moment and on her team in that moment, but on the rest of her career. I loved what she said as well about being at the top. She said, when you're at the top, The challenge is to make sure you are competing and evolving against the best version of yourself. And I think often that's the most difficult work to do. So I love what she had to say about that. One of the other things that Doc Ellis said in his episode was he talked about pressure being a privilege. And of course, that's not always the case. Sometimes pressure is definitely not a privilege. But he's talking about these moments in your professional life where you are under pressure. And if you think about what has created that pressure and what has brought you to that pressure point, and how much other people would love to be in that situation of pressure. There's such a useful way of thinking about that moment. Pressure there is a privilege. And this month, I've noticed it's been a really, a really busy month for me. And thinking about where's the privilege in the pressure that I'm feeling has been very useful to me at times this month. My recommendation for something to listen to this week is a classic, Desert Island Discs. I did think when I included it, I thought I must have included this before in a leadership letter. Um, I was amazed that I hadn't. Maybe it was too obvious to include. It was so obvious to include. It's one of those things where I'm also still amazed, a bit like Brené Brown's TED Talk, when I, said, when I hear that someone hasn't watched it. I think, wow, how is that possible? And I, Desert Island Discs comes into that category too. It's a treasure. I absolutely love it. I love the strength to strength it's going to under Lauren Laverne. And... Recently, a favourite episode, a new favourite episode was Baroness Floella Benjamin. My goodness, she is seriously inspiring. And of course, has that, for me, has that amazing connection to my childhood and seeing her on the TV as a child and then now hearing her talk as a leader and talk about what she went through and how she overcame it and the attitudes and the ways of working with others that have enabled her to achieve what she has and stay open-minded, open-hearted in the face of considerable difficulty and challenge in her childhood. It's, it's great stuff. I absolutely love it. I'm sure if you're already a Desert Island Discs fan, this will be the moment where you start yelling back at this podcast about which favourites I haven't chosen because you've no doubt got a long list. Something else and I've been paying attention to in the last month and I've noticed that some of you have too, has been around goals. 
So in the UK, as we have headed into lockdown two, we've been reflecting, some of us, on the fact that, and I certainly, I certainly have personally been reflecting on the fact that I've done a lot of sort of setting short-term goals this year, the kind of goals that help me get through a day or a, a week when things are busy and when things are changing rapidly. And then also doing with leaders and teams that really important work of despite just how much is going on, lifting your heads up and strategically looking ahead. What there's been less of is some looking for those goals that I say four to six weeks ahead. And the prospect of going into a more wintry, colder, darker, wetter lockdown, it's, it's been landing with people quite differently from the first one. We've been in this for a while now. So there's a lot of stuff that is in place that we don't have the urgency now of getting some things in place. So one of the things I've turned my attention to is how can goal setting support me and support the leaders that I work with in terms of this push through to the end of the year? What that will strengthen my connection to my values, what that will support me and support others in banking and reviewing and making progress that I can get energy and motivation from? What are the goals of across the next four to six weeks that are going to help me do that? So as always, an offer, not an instruction. I'd love to offer you the thought of how might a midterm goal be both a useful support and challenge for you in this next phase of 2020. Could be personally, could be professionally, could be both. One of the ways that I've been thinking about this is um, in terms of how much I move. Again, that, that wintry lockdown having an impact on that too. So I was thinking about, right, what's my four to six week goal around moving and exercising and getting some physical activity into my breaks and noticing I'm kind of getting up, caught up in the shoulds. What should I be doing without really translating that into some action? So two steps for me to tackle that. First is the audit of what I am actually doing. So that voice in my head being quite critical of what I'm not doing. I'm actually taking a bit of time to step back and say, OK, what am I doing that counts? What's already happening? Because walking counts, gardening counts, standing up and stretching counts. Dancing around the kitchen on a Friday also counts. It all counts as movement. So rather than telling myself I'm starting from nothing, I am actually starting from something. And it's useful to remember that. So that step one is to audit what I am actually doing in relation to this goal. Second is to then set the goal. Something to aim for that even if I don't enjoy the getting through it and the preparation for it, I know I'll enjoy the results. For me, in terms of the movement, it's also then about looking for something we can do as a family, something that we can train for that's further ahead, something that's enough of a stretch without being something that I can quite easily give up on and creating some accountability there too by sharing that with the family. So from a work perspective, maybe think about what do you want to aim for in that time? It might be a leadership behaviour. It might be a specific work goal in relation to productivity or something that you want to complete. It might relate to progress towards strategic goals or research that needs doing or one of those things that keeps falling off the urgent list but doesn't quite making it to the thinking far ahead list either. So if something comes to mind right now, take a longer look. What would the impact be on you, your team, the business and your stakeholders if you were to get this done? What's the story you want to tell about this goal? How does it align with and enhance your values as a leader and an organisation? 
What would be the impact of not doing it? How will you mark the moment when it's done? And who else needs to know about this goal and can support the delivery of it? There's something about a medium-term goal at the moment that, for me, I'm finding both settling and motivating. And maybe it will do that for you too. Have a go. Let me know. So once again, I'd like to thank my guests, George Blizzard and Nikki Regazzoni, for sharing their leadership insights in this episode. Remember, I'd love to hear from you. Who would you like to write a leadership letter to? Maybe even send us the letter that you've written. I'd love that. And who might you want to hear from in this podcast? Please do get in touch by heading to thecausewaycoaching.com. Please do like and subscribe and comment on the podcast wherever you download the podcast from. And we'll very much look forward to seeing you for episode three. This has been the Leadership Letters Podcast. See you soon.